Micah chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we look upon your word to understand it. Help us to uh, absorb your truth into not only our minds, but our hearts, that we may be obedient to you, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moraseth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen to earth and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt, melt beneath him. And the valley splits apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the very gates of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass on in nakedness and shame, you who live in Sephar. Those who live in Zanon will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. Its protection is taken from you. Those who live in Morath wither in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness the team to the chariot. You were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgression of Israel were found in you. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Moraseth Gath. The town of Aksib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Meresheh. He who is the glory of Israel will come to Adullam. Shave your heads in mourning for the children to whom you delight, in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bold as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you had lived uh, at the beginning of the second half of the 8th century BC, in either the kingdom of of Judah or Israel, Ramona, you want to put that uh, map up? I'm not sure how clear this is. It'll be slightly clear. This is a map of, of Judah and Israel around this time. Ju- uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. If you'd lived there, 
you would have lived in the second half of the 8th century through what would have been classed as a boom period. As regards the economic performance of the two nations, they were doing very well. Uh, They were also... uh, at the height of, in some ways, at the height of their military power, they exercised a lot of foreign influence around the surrounding nations. Indeed, at this point in history, uh, these, the two kingdoms together were at their peak in terms of their overall size. Together, they were as big as anything of which Solomon would have ruled over in his day. So things were good. By all measures, the future, I'm sure, was pretty, pretty bright. Yet this was not to last. It was not to last because, as the Bible tells us and as the history books tell us, things were about to change. For during the years that Micah of Moraseth exercised his ministry, that was during the reigns of the king Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the entire political and economic landscape round about the nation was, nations were, was about to change. For on the horizon was the great juggernaut, the Assyrian Empire. And it was about to explode onto the international scene. We know that in 722 BC, the northern kingdom, the, the, town, the capital city of Samaria, see it there with the blue dot, um, it was uh, uh, laid siege to by the, uh, by the armies of the Assyrian king, Uh, and eventually uh, succumbed, and the king uh, Sargon II of Assyria took away the northern kingdom. He carried them away into exile. Uh, And Judah did not escape either, for at the beginning of the the 7th century BC, the Assyrians entered into Judah as well and its outlying towns and fortresses, reaching the very gates of Jerusalem. You'll see there those big arrows show the direction in which they came. Um, and it was only by the intervention of the Lord that uh, the, the city of Jerusalem was, in fact, spared. It was into this world that Micah from the, t- the small town of uh, Moraseth, or Moraseth Gath, some 20-odd miles southwest of Jerusalem, the capital. You'll see it in that green ring. It's probably not very clear, but that small uh, red arrow points to where exactly that is. Moraseth Gath. Uh, 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, thereabouts, uh, he received the word of the Lord and began to preach. Now, we know very little about the man himself, uh, not even who his father was, because that was the usual way a title or somebody was introduced, uh, Micah, the son of whoever, but not this time. We know where he was from. Micah was from a fertile and prosperous area known as the, the Cephala, I think that's how you pronounce it, that generally that area inside that green ring. Uh, rural, uh, they were rural agricultural villages and towns. They were doing very, very well. They were not impoverished by, by any means or any standard of the time. But this message was for Jerusalem and, to a lesser extent, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Micah preached this message uh, for a period of time between around 742 and 686 BC. And he lived through, with, along with his contemporaries, his contemporaries were Isaiah and Hosea, uh, what I have briefly outlined as a history of the time. Micah would have seen the destruction of Samaria and the northern kingdom, and he played an active part 
uh, in the siege of Jerusalem. For after the siege of Jerusalem, a hundred years later, um, when uh, after the siege by the Assyrian king called Sennacherib, when it was actually the Babylonians who were at the gates now, um, uh, the, in the book of Jeremiah, we actually read about Micah. Jeremiah 26, I want to quote this in full. Uh, Jeremiah 26, Then the, the officials of all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man should be sentenced to death. They're talking about Jeremiah here. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our He has Uh, He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of the people, Micah of Moraseth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound under overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah king of Judah or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. So Micah's preaching actually made an impact on the situation and the time he lived in. Micah's message or his vision, which he saw in verse 1, regarding Samaria and Jerusalem was one of those few times when a prophet's word was actually heeded by the leadership of the people. And the result was, of course, Jerusalem was spared. And Hezekiah, as Hezekiah turned to the Lord, and the Lord answered, and of course, he sent the, the plague to the Assyrian armies and they scattered. So what is this message then that Isaiah saw concerning Jerusalem and Samaria? Well, it is a message of judgment, of devastation for the people of God in both kingdoms. But particularly, Micah is interested in Jerusalem. There was a big problem in the land, according to Micah. For even though the land was going through a relative boom time, all was not well. For like all the prophets, Micah sees beyond the mere externals to the reality behind what is taking place. And Micah sees that because of the people's idolatry and failure to obey the Lord, especially in their dealings with the poor and with the oppressed, that the Lord was now going to come in judgment. The land was covered with wealthy people who were always in the temple, always outwardly religious, but inwardly they exploited the poor for their own gain. They used their influence to pervert justice and righteousness. And all this was given the green light by the religious leaders and the the authorities, the so-called prophets. But look again, friends, at the time when Micah preached this message. During the reigns of Jotham and Hezekiah. You see the very startling thing here. These were good kings. Jotham and Hezekiah were good kings. Under these kings, idolatry and false practices were taken away. Indeed, they were all in some they were both in some part great reforming kings. King Ahaz, of course, was the exception. He was indeed a very bad king. 
But behind all that is taking place, there was this stubborn idolatry, a refusal to obey the law of the Lord. And so Micah comes with a message from the Lord that he will come in judgment on his people and ultimately they will go into exile. Exile, of course, was the great curse that God had prescribed in the law. When the people failed to obey the Lord, Moses told them, you will go into exile. But the book of Micah is not all judgment. For there, he also brought a great message of hope. For in Micah we also see that God will save a remnant of his people. That his salvation will come as well as his judgment. For a new king will lead God's people. A ruler will bring in a time of peace and security for God's people. And this king will be the, the way in which God is faithful to his covenant promises with his people, even when they are deserving of judgment because of their sinfulness. So in Micah chapter 1, he begins his prophecy with a message of judgment on Samaria and Jerusalem, the two cities. He begins with the bad news about the Lord's coming in verses 2 and 4. Verse 2 begins with the command to hear and to listen. The idea here is the, the divine law court. The sovereign Lord is about to witness against all the inhabitants of the earth. The Lord sits in his holy temple as the judge and as the prosecution. He witnesses against the people. You see, for Micah, the reality behind all the events that he is going to see in his lifetime is not the random passions of great kings or empires. It's not the random happenings of history. Rather, the rise and fall of nations and empires lies in the providential hand of the sovereign Lord. And his sovereignty is over all nations, not just Judah and, and Israel, but it extends to all peoples everywhere. For God is the sovereign judge and he acts in accordance with his own plans and his own purpose. Then in verse 3 we have the next command. Look. Pay attention. Because the same sovereign judge of nations, says Micah, is about to come from his heavenly dwelling place. And he's about to act. The nations need to know that the Lord is acting in the history. Specifically for Micah and his audience, the Lord is acting in their history. This time for Judah and Samaria. The Lord is coming and he comes to tread the high places of the earth. High places were uh, high areas of ground used for pagan worship. Uh, after Solomon's death, King Solomon and the, the nation of Israel was divided into two. The king of the the northern uh, the king of Israel, the northern nation, Jeroboam, set up for that nation two high places where they could come and worship Yahweh via a golden calf. This was, of course, to stop them going to, to the southern nation, to Jerusalem, to the temple which the law required. But also, uh, through the, the history of those nations, we remember that they, they had set up, there was also... Uh, and the high places, uh, high places set up for the Canaanite gods, such as Baal and Asherah. Remember the episode with Elijah uh, and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Those were high places. So says Micah, with the first hint of the problem, 
The Lord, the great judge of nations, is about to act, and he's about to come and tread these high places, places of false worship and idolatry. Mountains melt beneath him, and the valley splits apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a hill, says Micah. This is the language of devastation, of total ruin. What is symbolically so and so physically strong and solid, that is, mountains and valleys are taken away by the Lord's coming judgment. What looks strong and impossible to move before the Lord melts like wax. The language is terrible in its majesty as it describes the Lord's coming. No doubt Micah has in mind here the great Assyrian armies as they come to bring absolute ruin and devastation over all that the people of Judah and Samaria consider impossible to move. All the confidence that Samaria and Jerusalem have in their defenses, their high fortresses, will be nothing before the might of the coming judgment that the Lord is about to bring. Then in verse 5, we find the reason for the Lord's coming in judgment. It's because of Jacob's transgression and the sins of the house of Israel. The Lord comes to judge because Israel has transgressed the law of the Lord. They have stepped over the boundaries that he has put in place. Because of the sin. Sin here is the idea of missing the mark, not reaching the target. They have been judged and found wanting in the eyes of God. But what is Jacob's transgression, Micah asks? I take Jacob here to be a reference to the northern kingdom. Is is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? You see, for the comfortable metropolitan classes in Jerusalem whom Micah would have been preaching this to, this would have sounded probably like music to their ears with their outward show of religiosity. God was coming in judgment. Great, all those evil pagans, they deserve it. Good stuff, that's what they need. God is coming to judge Samaria. Well, they deserve it. Their awful pagan practices are way up there. Time they were sorted out. God is coming in judgment on Jerusalem. Oh, wait a minute. That's us. And the blow hits them right between the eyes. They wouldn't have been expecting it. They could wag their finger at Samaria, at its transgressions. But it was also Judah itself. Notice that Micah compares Jerusalem here to a high place, a place of pagan worship and idolatry. Judah, Judah's high place is Jerusalem, where the very temple of the Lord was in all its grandeur and all its splendor as Solomon had built it. How could this be? How could the place of God's dwelling be called a high place? The very city where God suggests or made his dwelling. And the great issue in the northern kingdom, again, the capital city, Samaria. The place that King Umri and King Ahab had invested so much in years, years before this. A city that they had, Umri had purchased and built himself with great stonework. Symbols of prestige and grandeur in the northern kingdom. Yet within these cities, side by side with the worship of Yahweh, was the temples of pagan practice. Within these cities, God's covenant people, who were meant to live according to the law that God had given them, instead ignored him, oppressed, and hurt the vulnerable and helpless. 
The Lord that, or the law that was meant to prevent such things was disregarded. Verse 6 then begins the Lord's action. The great and terrible judge will bring on Samaria his judgment. Samaria with its massive stone walls, its huge high position, great defensive position. Samaria, a great fortress, a stronghold, will become a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards, a place of prosperity and strength, a place of great power in the eyes of the people, reduced to stones in a heap. It would be like saying, I guess, in our case, that the city of London would become nothing more than a vegetable garden. Who among us could imagine such a thing? But as Micah prophesies, God will judge Samaria, all her luxuries and exploitations and what seems to be something that they can rely upon, all the confidence they have in themselves will be laid bare. The great stone foundations and walls will melt like wax. This is exactly what takes place, 722, 721 BC, when the Assyrians finally capture the city. They destroy it. They carry off all its treasures and its people into slavery. God was going to pour her stones into the valley beneath the city. Her great foundations would be displayed to the world, and the walls that were built on them would be no more. Her idols, her temple gifts, her images, all destroyed which gets to the heart of the issue. Because of her idolatry, she has been judged by the sovereign Lord of nations, and his chosen instrument was the Assyrian hordes. Cruel and evil Assyrian. Cult prostitution was, of course, a known practice in Samaria. Amos uh, talked about it. The people paid to use the service of the shrine prostitute in the hope that the gods would bring uh, fertility to their animals and a bumper harvest. And so says God, since it was in that fashion that Samaria received her wages and her prosperity, they will again be used for the same purpose, but this time not in the temples of Samaria, in the shrines of the Assyrians and by her soldiers. Israel's military destruction was not brought about by lack of military power or economic power. Micah says the main issue was a spiritual one. God's covenant people had committed spiritual adultery and they were now paying the price for the rebellion. Exile and banishment from the land that God had given them. As God's covenant people, they were bound to him and he to them. They belonged to him, but they failed to exclusively devote themselves to him. And of course, friends, that remains a danger for God's covenant people today. We may not present our monies at the shrine for the services of prostitutes, but in our society we can just as well give ourselves to the gods of money and greed. All of us in one way or another are affected by the affluence and the materialism that surrounds us, that we live within. And the danger we face is to love these things more than the one who gives those things. To spend our time in self-service rather than in serving Christ and his gospel. Could it be that the weak and pathetic state of the church in this country has something to do with God's people's failure to exclusively give themselves to him? And instead, busy, we are busy committing spiritual adultery with the, 
with the gods of the pagan cultures, no matter how outwardly Christian we may be. Could it be? Then in verse 8, we have Micah's response to the vision he saw concerning Samaria. He goes into a type of mourning ritual and invites the people of Judah to do the same. Look at verse 16. He weeps and wails and will go about barefoot and naked as a sign of his great anguish. He howls and moans at the knowledge of what will take place by the hand of God because he knows, verse 9, that Samaria's wound is incurable. The wound here I take to be a reference to both Samaria's idolatry and sinfulness and also the judgment itself that God will bring. Micah knows that there's no stopping it. Like gangrene, the only cure is amputation. The idea of an incurable wound comes up a few times in the Old Testament, always of a, of a condition which the Lord himself will bring about and which he will not back down on until his own time. Micah weeps because he knows that there is nothing that can now be done. But even more a cause of distress is that he knows that Judah and his own people will not escape that great judge of nations. The same incurable wound has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of Jerusalem. Micah sees the same idolatry and sinfulness that will bring the destruction of Samaria will ultimately and inevitably bring the destruction of Jerusalem. The same spiritual adultery that persists in Samaria was eating away at Jerusalem. It was a high place. That's what he called it, verse 5. And so now again, Micah sees the hand of God will move against the people of Judah. In verses 10 through 15, Micah names nine towns which uh, form an approximate 10-mile radius, very, very roughly that green line in the map, um, around his own hometown in the, in the Cephla. Uh, it was the, the hills and the valleys and the surrounding area that, that this was, was what guarded Jerusalem. And he mentions these, uh, mentions these uh, towns here as he anticipates the Assyrian hordes coming down in to, uh, and invade, to invade this, these outlying towns, which of course all took place from 701 BC. But as he names these towns, he also uses a variety of, of puns and, and plays on words uh, to hammer home his message. You can't see it in the English, but it's, it's there in the Hebrew. And the first and last places he mentions in particular highlight the total disaster that Micah sees coming from um, sees coming to uh, Judah. For tell it not in Gath is a direct quote from King David. On the occasion that Israel was defeated by the Philistines and Saul and Jonathan both were killed, David lamented, tell it not in Gath. Clearly Micah sees defeat is coming. And then in uh, verse 15, he sees uh, Adullam, the final place he mentions, again was a very low point in Israel's history, for it was a cave in Adullam that David and 400 other men fled from Saul. They took refuge in a cave. And the glory of Israel, all its pomp and splendor, will flee like David to a hiding place because of the might of the Assyrian armies that will move through the villages and sweep all before them. 
So then in verse 10, Beth Ophrath, which means dust town or house of dust, Micah says, roll in the dust because your defeat and humiliation are coming. There will be nakedness and shame for those who live in Shifar, which means beautiful or, or pleasant because all their beauty will be left behind when they're paraded through the town into slavery and exile by their captors. Those who lived in Zanon, which sounds like the Hebrew for come out, will not come out because they will be encircled. They will be siege, under siege from the Assyrian armies. Beth Ezel, which is very difficult to understand, but could mean house of taking away. So they mourn because they have nothing left to protect. Their town has been literally taken away. Meroth sounds like the Hebrew for bitter. Those in bitter town, wither in pain, waiting for relief from the invaders, but none will come. Because this disaster, says Micah, is from the Lord. Behind the unstoppable military advance of Shennacherib's troops is the judgment of God on his covenant people. Lachish, which was a massive fortress that, guided, uh, that guarded the, the way to Jerusalem, um, it's actually on the map if you can see it. Um, they are to harness um, Lachish, a massive fortress. Its walls were six meters thick in some places, but they will fare no better than anywhere else, for even with this mighty fortification they will fall. Lachish sounds like the Hebrew word for team. So the inhabitants are to get their chariots out, but not for battle. They're to harness their team to escape the reach of the Assyrians. They were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Jerusalem. The transgression of Israel was found in you. I think this is a reference to their arrogant pride. They thought that they were invincible behind their great and mighty fortress. And so from pride at its root comes all types of sinfulness, self-reliance, self-glorification, self-sufficiency. They thought by their, uh, their economic or military power they were safe. But the Lord is about to judge their failure to trust in him and rely on him alone. Their selfish pride is about to be exposed like the foundations of Samaria will be. Morasseth Gath, Micah's hometown, could mean something like a possession. So they, that is Lachish, are going to give Morasseth, which had helped the guard, uh, as part of a gift to the invaders, to the great Assyrian king. It will be his possession. Aksib, which means deception, will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. Aksib was an important base economically and through manufacturing and business. But all the confidence they had in that economic place will prove deceptive. For it will only be a ruin after the invasion. The Lord is bringing a conqueror against Mersha, which means conqueror. So they will have a complete role reversal. Rather than being conquerors, they themselves will be conquered, verse 15. And the glory of Israel, all its splendor and greatness, will come to a cave in Adjalem, a small remnant, as in the time of David. So says Micah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah in verse 16, Go into mourning. Mourn now, because this is coming. The disaster will come upon you. Mourn for your children and for the vulnerable, because they are going to go into exile. 
that feared curse that God said he would bring about because they were disobedient. It's going to happen. The incurable wound has spread and neither Samaria nor Jerusalem will now be safe. The great judge of nations has moved in judgment. The Lord is coming down in terrible judgment. Micah, friends, paints a very, a very grim picture here for the people of God. Hard to see any light in this. And I think that we should be aware that God is still the judge. He will not tolerate our spiritual idolatries. He wants us for himself and himself alone. God doesn't want to share us with anyone or anything else. He wants our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. He will not tolerate our willful rebellion against him. So the only really response to this, I think, friends, is simple. It's repentance. Repent and believe. Turn back to the Lord. Seek his forgiveness. Judah here had the scriptures. They had the prophets. They had Micah to plead with them to change their ways. And yet they persisted in their rebellion. And the judge came. The wound was incurable as Micah saw it. And he lamented and he wept because he knew God would judge his own people because they had failed to obey him. And there was nothing, nothing Micah could do. All he could do was weep and wail by what he saw, by what he saw. But friends, as New Testament Christians, as people this side of Jesus, we are in far more privileged position than Micah or the the Israelites were. Because, of course, we know of someone far greater than Micah who wept over the incurable wound that came to Jerusalem. And this prophet not only wept over this this incurable wound, this prophet actually became the wound. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He became sin for us. That is what Jesus has done. That which was incurable, our rebellion and failure, was cured by God. That which we were powerless to stop, the mighty judgment of the God of nations, was stopped by Jesus, by taking that punishment. And so I think what we have to see from this sorry, depressing story of God's people is this. That as God has given us new life and freed us from that judgment, he has saved us. But friends, that doesn't give us any excuse to willfully obey again, willfully disobey him. We need to keep coming to Jesus, asking for that grace of repentance, turning away continually from those idols which tempt us to worship them with our money, with our time, with our desire, rather than God, and rest on his grace, to walk in the light, as John put it. For if we don't, if we willfully disobey, if we act like Israel and like Judah and like God's people in the Old Testament, it need not surprise us that we experience the same judgment. If we aren't prepared to follow him, Jesus expects our obedience. He won't tolerate our spiritual adultery with the idols that surround us. So friends, repent. Turn away from what hinders you from serving God. Turn away from what distracts you from Jesus and his gospel. And seek his forgiveness. Turn back. And like King Hezekiah, seek his face. 
and you will find that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.